Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am here with a fantastic and exciting guest in Dan Lear, who is the head of marketing and partnerships at Gravity Legal. So me and Dan ended up connecting on LinkedIn, and I'm really, really interested in his background. Uh, We share a passion in moving the legal industry forward through technology and other things too. So I'm super excited for this conversation. So um, thanks for coming on, Dan. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's it's really a pleasure. Excited to be chatting with you. Awesome. So um, I just wanted to kind of start out with a little bit of background stuff. So, you know, we're working with Gravity Legal right now, but would you mind telling me the story about, uh, you know, how you got here, superhero origin, uh, so to speak? Yeah. And uh, I love to share this story and it can go on way too long. So uh, I'll try to give you the hopefully long enough to be interesting, but short enough to not be too uh, self-aggrandizing version. But uh, I was involved in technology while I was in law school. I was working as a paralegal at Microsoft and kind of even going into law school knew that sort of I didn't want to do the traditional legal practice thing. But what that was really going to look like was, was kind of unclear to me. And so graduating from law school, I became a typical kind of lawyer, did technology transactions, a lot of the same work, frankly, I was doing at Microsoft with both Microsoft and also some other clients. And the thing that really struck me was I, I really got, and I was, I'm not a technical person by heart. I don't, I'm not an engineer, but I was working on all of these really cool technologies and watching all of these like really interesting ideas, sort of the future be built. And then I'd go back to my office and the way that I was like actually delivering legal services was so far from all of these really cool things that I was watching Microsoft enable their clients to do and these just sort of really far out technologies. And, and it, was, it was really sort of like going back in time. And I even remember thinking at the time, and this is when I had a much narrower purview, like, Gaul, if there's any legal department that should be sort of future thinking or forward or advanced, you'd think it would be someone like Microsoft. And again, it just really felt like returning you know, to the stone age is a little unfair, but like really going sort of back in time, you know, billable hours and the whole thing. And so pretty quickly after I started practicing, I realized like I got to do something else. And, and one of the realizations that I had, and I, this is maybe a slightly off color joke, but I think it's probably all right. Like uh, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. I didn't know a lot about technology, but just by being immersed in it for a number of years and just by seeing kind of how everything the technology ecosystem was evolving at Microsoft. When I went to go talk with like legal folks about what was happening with technology, I all of a sudden looked like you know a star just because I, I had this information that I had absorbed by osmosis. And that was really the trajectory. Like from there, I kind of, and again, happy to dive into tactics and specifics, but really just sort of started evangelizing what I thought the future of legal services could look like or should look like with this amazing technology that we had. And from there, I was fortunate enough to land a job at uh, the online legal marketplace, Avo, where I did a lot of that work talking about what we were building there and kind of the evolution of legal services. When that company got acquired, I hung out and kind of hung up my own shingle and did some independent work. And then for the last two years, I've been spending my time with Gravity Legal, where we do payment processing and money management for lawyers and law firms, but 
really we're thinking more broadly about building the financial infrastructure, the financial kind of tools and technology for modern lawyers and legal services delivery. So that's, I don't know if that, if that checks the boxes you're looking for, I guess along the way, I got a law degree. Um, I'm still a licensed lawyer, kind of wear that hat, certainly from an ethics perspective and right or wrong. A lot of lawyers give me credibility because I check that box probably more wrong than right. But you know they like that and certainly gave me credibility at, at Avo. But yeah, definitely way more interested on the business side on kind of building this future and building technology, but also interested in this sector because of those intersections between technology and law and, and kind of how this amazing legal system has such an impact in so many of our lives, but how it could have so much more of an impact if we figure out how to deliver legal services better. So, you know, I think that's a fantastic intro too, but as far as like, you know, I think uh, boxes ticked, I think we're, we're, we've got a lot of stuff to work on right now, but my, my big question here, and like, I got to say, we are going to dive into some pretty interesting stuff because we have had some similar challenges on the client side about, you know, that really, really important thing that a lot of people don't pay attention to, which is getting paid by the people who are hiring you for your services. (laughs) But um, to kind of circle back, I mean, just kind of like big picture question, like, what do you think it is about the law that may have made this industry a little bit more resistant to change than others that are out there? Yeah, there's a few different answers. I I actually don't think the list of answers to this question is very long. I mean, in defense of my brothers and sisters at the bar, like law is precedent-based and conservative for a reason. And even if we set aside sort of the way that the legislative branch works, in order to like have a functioning, call it economic or or capitalist system. And I don't want to get too nerdy, but like you need reliability, right? You need to know that like, if you pursue a given path as a business owner, you're not going to get sued. And the rules are usually kind of enforced uniformly and consistently. And and we need that, right? Because as as a business, you're, and again, I know this, you know this, you're always dealing with risk. And so understanding where the boundaries are is really important. And that's what lawyers do to a large degree is that they, they help define and then provide guidance and counseling on those boundaries. And so, and that's what you're taught in law school is like, well, you know, how is what I have before me like what's happened in the past, right? How is what I'm looking at like what I've seen before and then applying it? And so you're always looking backward. You're always thinking about precedent. You're always thinking about what's come before. And so you're not inclined to think about the future. And so I think that's one reason. I think similarly, lawyers are trained. And again, I think this is lawyers overplay this hand, which is a problem in and of itself. But lawyers are often trained as as risk spotters. So like their job is to take a new situation and and pick out all of the ways and problems that could go, you know, think something could go wrong. And again, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of say like good lawyers are the ones who figure out how to help their clients navigate that space. But often they default to here's a million problems with what you've put in front of me and it'll never work. And so I think that's another reason. And then finally, I I am going to give a little bit of a kind of call out to frankly, the lawyer guild and like the fact that we've been so protective of who can deliver legal services and frankly defined the delivery of legal services or, or, or the practice of law in such an amorphous way, such as frankly to benefit those people who are already sort of in the club and again, like in their defense, to some degree, like they're just acting as self-interested people. Like they want to protect their nut. They want to make sure nobody else is coming in and stealing their cheese. 
if I can mix my metaphors or my food, my food analogies. <laughs> yeah. And so like, they're just doing, you know, the, to some degree now, now granted, I think they are entrusted to look out not only for themselves, but also the health of the judicial system and, and of the legal system and ensuring that, that people have faith in it. Um, I think that's part of what lawyers should be doing. But I think there's a little bit of, again, if we want to get nerdy regulatory capture or a situation in which the folks who are deciding who practices law and, and how those services get delivered are also the folks who have a self-interest in the answer to that question. Right, right. <laughs> and so, you know, I would say, again, kind of to recap, I would say precedent-based profession uh, filled with people who are trained to spot risk and add a layer of kind of self-protection. And it's really hard to move those folks forward. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And I hadn't really thought about it like that before, but I guess it's it's kind of the, you know, the, I'm, I'm actually not going to, I'm, I'm going to take a step back and not use the metaphor, but it's what they're dealing with every single day. And yeah. it's really hard to turn that, uh, you know, that, like that opinion off when you're, we're going into doing something else, but like it, it actually at the same time though. So guys like you and I have our work cut out for us in terms of getting people to do something for the first time or the second time or the third time. And, you know, some of the first questions we hear all the time too, when we're talking to prospects are like, oh, hey, I got to run this by the bar organization, or have you done this in Florida or <laughs> like that kind yep. of stuff. Yep. But at yep. the same time, I think there's always a, a flip side to that coin too, because if you think about it, if you are an attorney that is operating in an industry where there's a lot of pressure to be conservative it actually makes the people who do decide to move forward at a higher advantage comparatively, right? Yeah, no. And I think there is a massive, the legal sector is undergoing a really significant transformation, both technologically driven. Um, I think interestingly, some of the regulatory stuff is shifting and also just kind of from a social perspective, there's huge opportunity. You're totally right. Like there's huge opportunity for those folks who want to even moderately zig while everyone else is zagging. Yeah. I'm not going to comment on to whether we're getting out of this or not, but you know, certainly last year and a half has been pretty interesting as far as a lot of things with technology and the law totally. moving forward pretty quickly. But um, you know, what's kind of exciting you right now as far as the trends that are out there in the market? Oh man, where to start? I think, yeah, there's, there's so many different answers to this question. I, I think, again, as somebody who's building a business kind of providing services, providing services to, to lawyers. And again, this is maybe not as interested to, interesting to a lawyer audience, but like there's a lot of investment right now in this space, which is, again, I think that's super interesting, which I think will lead to some degree to more innovation and, and more economies of scale, you know, as, as kind of different companies and services are stitched together. I think that's going to be super interesting. So again, I know that's not particularly interesting to a lawyer audience, but I'll kind of mention that. Man, I think there's just a lot of really interesting experimentation going on in this space right now. Maybe for lawyers who kind of fit our target market profile or you know that for Gravity Legal and those for Case Fuel, I think some of the most interesting things are happening kind of in the the kind of form-based bot kind of even automation kind of technology space. So there are companies who are a ton of companies who are working on kind of improving the intake process using technology. I think that's super interesting. I think a lot of the technological automation that's coming about from companies like Zapier that are not even you know legal specific to folks like After Pattern, formerly Community Lawyer, or Documate, where you can start building automated processes to deliver services. 
I think stuff like that is 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 super interesting. And then obviously, you know, the space that that we're in, I think there's been an interesting kind of intersection outside of legal of kind of technology and finance. And I think there's a lot of opportunity in the legal sector to think about how we can both improve the way that law firms run in order to serve people better, but also potentially figure out different ways to provide capital to would-be legal clients who can hopefully, you know, more effectively get their needs met. They're not getting it met right now. So I would, you know, hopefully, hopefully that's a, that's a relatively interesting answer. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to go from there, but like, I mean, I want to say like one of the things I've seen a lot of different ways, and, and this is something I took a little bit of issue with. I saw an ad for a company that I'm not going to name, but they were kind of talking about the access to justice thing, which is obviously really mm. huge in this country. Their solution was it for was for attorneys to charge less, which I don't think makes a lot of business sense for anyone who's trying to run a service mm. business, but figuring out these interesting solutions to potentially get a win-win in place for somebody who's in need of legal services, but maybe doesn't have five or 10 grand in their bank account because you know how many Americans do these days. And then finally getting a way for attorneys to get paid. So it's like, it's also just kind of coming at an interesting time too. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about state planning stuff in particular. And it was crazy to see how these things were rolling out during the pandemic because we had you know notarization required in most states. We had bars that basically made temporary adjustments where you could do stuff electronically. We have ones that ended up moving back. We had ones that moved 100% online. But um, there's kind of like this decoupling of you know signing the check in the the office with the uh, you know mahogany bookshelves and all that kind of stuff too. So I think it's a really really interesting time for that too. But let's um let's kind of double click on the whole payment stuff and like let's kind of you know run me through what the, what kind of stuff you've been seeing in the space and maybe some stuff that Gravity's been doing to kind of help solve that problem. Yeah. So. You know, it's funny you mentioned the pandemic and like our research suggests that it's still like probably two or three out of 10 lawyers who even accept electronic payments. So there's still, yeah, there's, yeah. And I talk to a lot of them pretty regularly. There's still a a lot of room to grow simply in like helping lawyers accept credit cards as crazy as that sounds. And again, as one example, so we actually launched in, we'd been kind of in stealth mode and had brought on a couple of clients, but we sort of had a formal launch in March of 2020, which was a crazy time to enter the market. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but we got a call from somebody on, you know, on like March 20th who said like, hey, the clients are still paying, the work's still coming in, like March 20th of last year, right? Right. Everything's good, right? When And this is back when, you know, we weren't sure whether the future was going to look like... Uh, the Walking Dead, right? Yeah. Um, if that's a relevant reference or the stand. I mean, I, I certainly, I'm not, I'm not a, a, a doom person, but I was like, how bad is this going to get? But, uh, you know, we, we, things were really uncertain. And he said, listen, I'm, I'm still getting paid. The clients are still sending me work. The only problem is all of my physical paper checks are going to a lockbox in a shared office space that the landlord has locked the door to and is refusing to give access to anyone. So he's like, my cash flow problem is literally that I cannot get to these checks and like deposit them. Yeah. Um, so he's like, you guys got to help me. And so like, as just like a baseline of, even if you are a firm for whatever reason, like, and criminal lawyers, some of them have really good reasons for only accepting cash or, or, or preferring <laughs> cash. But like, even as a backup, right? As something that you can use, you know, when you are working from the beach or remotely or from any of these places where you want to work, like, 
figuring out a strategy for electronic payments is is super important. But kind of you know moving on from there, I'll, I'll just hit a couple of highlights. One technology that we've built that that we found is very popular with lawyers is the ability for lawyers to shift the cost of credit card processing to their clients. Not every firm likes to do this. I totally get that there's a school of thought that's like, no, that's a cost of doing business. Firms should eat it. We can have, I'm totally happy to have that discussion, but like, I think there's room for it. And certainly giving firms the option to do it is not a bad thing. And we see firms kind of actually toggling that technology. So they'll shift costs sometimes and sometimes not, depending on the client and the matter or whatever. That's been, I think, really powerful. And frankly, like, again, when you think about, you know, your innovation budget in your law firm. If I said tomorrow, if you accept, if you accept, let's call it 50% of your payments on credit card and 50% via ACH or some other means, cash or, you know, paper checks or whatever. And I said, Hey, I can turn this technology on for you tomorrow. And you can reclaim really a, a percentage and a half of your total revenue, right? 3% all going to, to well, it's going to be lower, but regardless, <laughs> a percentage, call it of your total revenue, your total annual revenue, right? We're not even talking profit tomorrow, just by shifting these costs to your clients, like for a decent sized firm, like that's, I mean, that's, do you make me do math on the fly, but for a million, a firm, a firm that's grossing a million dollars a year, that's $10,000, right? That's real money. And real. for bigger firms, that's, that's even more. And so like the ability to sort of open up that window for, for firms or even just, you know, play with that a little bit where they can reclaim some of that cash has been really great. And then I'd say as we look forward, some of the things I talked about kind of this, you know, this big picture kind of financial sector changes for the way that that lawyers think about money, but I think there's a ton of opportunity to give lawyers better transparency into where their money's going and how like, you know, how it's coming in, how quickly it's coming in. There's opportunities to improve the process of reconciling if you're using a trust account. That's a huge headache for lawyers and something that in my mind should or could be automated fairly easily. There's opportunities to speed the time to lawyers getting paid so they don't have to wait for that money to actually settle. And then again, thinking more broadly, like what other types of problems do lawyers have as it relates to either getting their clients funding or you know, growth capital or other types of opportunities that we think lawyers can have? So yeah, like <laughs> that I went from I went from uh, payments to 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 bigger picture but like there there's I think a lot of oh and I'll, I will mention sorry one other thing that we've spent a lot of time doing and and that folks have shown a lot of interest in interest in is we built technology that enables firms to do recurring payments for subscriptions. Oh wow. And again it, it's not a huge there's not a lot of lawyers doing it but we've seen a lot of interest in it. And so that's a whole nother, you know, topic but that's something we we've, we've definitely seen on the horizon that I think has a lot of benefits for firms and clients. Yeah. I mean, I got to say the first thing that jumped out to me that was the jaw dropper was, you know, two to three out of 10 firms that have credit card payments yeah. period, which is crazy. And like, yeah. I mean, the, the way that we're usually kind of encountering this from this, the, you know, the kind of conversations that we're having with clients is like, you know, we're trying to help people close as much business as possible. We made the decision a very, very long time ago that credit card was the way to go. I've spoken with other business owners who sometimes have said, oh, well, I don't really want to eat that 3%, but it's just like, you know, running the numbers on that. If you have to explain to somebody how to use your crazy ACH setup and, you know, have them spend 20 minutes looking up their, 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 their routing number or pulling out an old check, like, you know, you're going to lose clients for sure. You're going to lose potential business and, you know, whatever, one out of 33, I'd say you probably lose more than one out of 33 people on that kind of stuff. So it'd probably be a push. 
But yeah, like not to mention this past year and and who's to say what's going to happen in the future. Just like, you know, we have a lot of people that move from closing in office to closing on Zoom. You know, especially when, you know, pre-vaccine, we're talking about estate planning and elder planning firms. It's like these people, you know, at-risk populations as far as this kind of stuff goes. So, I mean, I personally think it's a no-brainer, but like as far as this, um, you know, shifting the cost things too, let's talk about that a little bit more because I've never heard about that stuff before. Yeah, I mean... So again, depends on how far you want to go down the rabbit hole, but just a a, kind of a really quick primer. So initially the credit card brands, so like Visa, MasterCard, whomever, they prohibited anybody who was accepting a credit card from shifting those fees. And their incentive in doing this is like, they don't want you to know how much your airline miles cost. They want you to think (laughs) it's free. So you keep using that card. But I mean, as you know, in helping lawyers, and probably as a business owner yourself, like accepting credit cards, like somebody's going to bear that cost. And it turns yeah. out more often than not, it's the merchant, it's the business. And so there was a, a lawsuit, a class action lawsuit by a bunch of small businesses against the card brands that I think ultimately resolved itself back in like 2008, I want to say. If you Google card brand class action, you, there's a long article on Wikipedia on it. And in fact, we've written a ton on it on our blog, Financially Legal. So you can read about kind of the whole background on surcharging and how this all works there. But the card brands ultimately had to acquiesce and, and enable small businesses to do this. And so now, and there are a couple of exceptions that I'll mention, I won't remember the states exactly, but now in 42 out of the 50 states, it is totally legal for any small business, lawyers included, to shift the cost of their credit card processing. Debit cards are were exempted from the class action settlement, so you can't do debit cards. But it is totally legal for law firms to shift the cost of their, their credit card processing to their clients. Again, I won't remember the states, but there's a handful of states, three or four, that currently have state law that prohibits it. And so those folks can't do it. And then there's also like three or four states that have ethics opinions, believe it or not, bar association ethics opinions that prohibit it. And so, and Michigan is one, Mississippi is one, there's one or two other, those are the, and then uh, those are the, the ethics opinion states. I'll, I will say Oklahoma had a state law that was, I think, recently overturned. So it's, its status is still a little bit in question, but because it was overturned by a court case, but then Colorado actually just recently reversed course and they had a, they had a state law that prohibited it and they now have a state law that enables it. So yeah, it's, you know, and so, and some firms have already kind of tried to do it by either increasing their fees or kind of having some kind of convenience fee. We try to make it really easy for firms by our technology actually recognizes whether the card that a consumer has put in is a credit card or debit card. And if it's a credit card, it calculates that additional fee right there and says, hey, you know, not instead of paying $100, you're going to pay $103 because this firm has elected to charge a convenience fee for, for credit card transactions. And we have a lot of firms that that really like it. And and they again, they play with it, right? Like for higher value transactions, sometimes they enact it, but for lower ones, they don't. Sometimes they only offer certain payment methods to clients, sort of push them toward lower cost payment methods. So there's a bunch of different ways it, it plays out. But yeah, I just, again, when I think about like, you know, finding an extra one, two, even 3% of revenue in your firm, like tomorrow, that's a pretty awesome opportunity, especially for a firm, you know, like the kind that we were talking about before that are looking for opportunities for growth, looking for opportunities for differentiation, looking for opportunities to really stretch. So it's been cool. 
Yeah. And kind of on that note, I don't know if you guys keep numbers on this, but have you guys ever done studies of kind of before and afters of people when they introduce, you know, getting payment options in the mix? I mean, it could be specific ones or stuff in general. Do you guys uh, take, um, do studies on that or anything? So the, the average collection time for clients on our platform is about 14 days. So within two weeks, nearly all of our clients who at least send payment links out to get paid via our system are getting paid. I was a little bit more curious about kind of like the total processing volume. Obviously, there's not really going to be much of a before if you're introducing it for the first time. But like, you know, I'd expect that people are able to collect a higher percentage of the, um, you know, oh, that kind yeah, of stuff. We yeah, don't, <laughs> we don't have visibility yeah. into their collections rate. But, but before, we definitely know, and the, the Clio Trends report suggests, well, I mean, kind of documents that, and this is a little different, but like firms that use their trust account, which we enable firms to take electronic payments to do that, right, into their trust account. Firms that use their trust account have a much higher realization rate and a much higher collection rate because they have that, that money paid already. I know that's not exactly the question that you're asking, but certainly the time to payment goes up. We haven't done a solid like before and after snapshot, but yeah, I'd, I'd feel fairly confident that if you remove barriers to clients giving you money, the likelihood is that there'll be more, again, there's probably a subset of clients, bankruptcy clients or others who are a little more hesitant, but yeah. they'll be more likely to ensure that that bill gets paid. Yeah. I was going to say too, so this is going to be a, uh, a curveball, but I actually <laughs> should have probably mentioned this Love earlier. Uh, I, I actually did a stint working with um, First Data as far as doing uh, merchant processing oh. for a bit. Yep. And I'm trying to think, you know, just um, I'm going to say off the record, it's uh, just between me, you and uh, however many listeners. <laughs> I just, you know, a couple hundred subscribers. Both, both um, of our mothers, right? We know they're listening. <laughs> uh, but basically, um, I, I think there was, there's been some studies, I think a lot of the, uh, the larger cards put out there, but yeah, I, I've seen pretty like, you know, 30, 40 percent type numbers as far as getting that stuff open. But you know, the time to collections one thing. I've also seen some stats thrown out there as far as you know, actually doing the collections too, because like, do you guys have any stuff in place? I know you mentioned with subscriptions, but um, alternative payment schedules for people who might not be able to afford a lump sum upfront for something like, I don't know, you know, getting a trust package for three or five grand. Yeah. We've not built like reminders or anything like that into the system yet. But certainly we've seen a lot of firms get really creative with whether it's a, an, a collections, an email collections campaign that uses our technology to help firms kind of just coax people into paying, whether it's, you know, I, I will, there's a couple of different technologies that I've seen folks deploy on our platform that actually, or strategies that have worked. One is, this is your domain very squarely, but like incorporating getting paid into the establishment of a client relationship. So it's like, listen, you don't get the engagement agreement until you've paid me. And I know that sounds, that sounds really simple, but lawyers don't often build systems that make getting paid a part of their onboarding, right? And we obviously make that easy because you can get paid right away. Like you can know whether or not somebody's paid you, you know, if you're closing on Zoom, for example, right away. So that's, that's one piece. But I think I think like just the fact that you can get paid remotely and instantaneously is something that lawyers don't take nearly as much advantage of. I will say there's another a handful of firms that we work with who utilize our stored payment method technology. So this is the ability to save a client's either credit card, debit card, or um, bank account information. And again, 
stored securely by us. You don't have access to those numbers. All you see is the last four and the association with the client. But we have a number of firms who take a credit card up front and say, hey, uh, every month I'm going to let you know what your outstanding bill is, right? You owe me you know, $1,000 for 10 hours of work or whatever. That notification is going to come on the first of the month. If by the 10th of the month, I hear nothing from you as far as objections or questions, I'm going to charge your credit card for that outstanding amount. And those firms have like no collections. They have no problem getting paid for the work that they do. You know, I think more lawyers really ought to think about doing something like that because it, the amount of write downs that lawyers end up doing, the amount of chasing clients for money they end up doing, it's pretty significant. And there's, there's lots of ways, even just using the basic technologies that, that we've created, let alone things like subscriptions or some of the more advanced things that we have can help really improve their cash flow. Yeah, hundred percent. And like, I was actually, as far as uh, I've, I've, you know, retainers have to be absolutely miserable. And the longer you have those, like this, basically the collections thing just falls out the window. And, and I'm, pr- I'm probably sure there's numbers around how much time an average law firm ends up collecting versus actually billing for hours. And Clio's probably done that at some point, right? Yeah, <laughs> but, sure but, transport. but um, you know, the less time that you're doing on that, the more time you're serving clients, the more hours you're billing, the more times you're spending on, you know, working on stuff to actually move the business forward. But, um, you know, just one more thing on that, that point of getting the instant payment too. And, and like, I feel like um, this is kind of a harsh reality. I think a lot of people happen in like a juncture that, you know, I talk about a fair amount on the podcast, but going from being a referral-based practice to potentially going to people who are farther out from you know, your personal sphere of influence, something that we see often when we're moving people to marketing for the first time. When you're going to see somebody at the bar or you know, your niece's birthday two weeks, they're not going to stiff you on a payment. If somebody came in from a Google ad or you know, YouTube or Facebook or whatever, sometimes if you let that person out the door, you're never going to see them again. And you can get to the point where somebody's intellectually agreed with you and they've told you that, yeah, let's move forward with this. But it's a lot there's something magical that happens once the money exchanges hands and you'll find yourself being able to follow up with people so much more easily, even if it's something like a deposit or something like that. Again, it doesn't have to be, you know, um, holding a gun to someone's head and saying, give me five grand right now. But, you know, anything towards that direction is, has been absolutely massive for some, I mean, we, we have some people who've got some really clever strategies around you know, booking a first call and having a deposit for that. And then you can figure out the difference before you get the, you know, whatever the service happens to be. But, you know, the people that are are playing full court on this type of thing are the ones who are able to take advantage of traffic sources that are, you know, a lot more controllable and more scalable, which is what a lot of these things end up being. So I think it's super important to get that kind of stuff going, but um, I wanted to scratch the surface a little bit deeper. So I think like, you know, as far as talking about gravity as a platform, as opposed to kind of something else too. So I think, you know, you mentioned a couple of things about, it seems like it was integrating with some different stuff around the IOLTA accounts. And I don't know if there's anything around bookkeeping, but, you know, let's, let's kind of talk about the platform and kind of the different connections and, you know, using this as, as kind of a tool for innovating within someone's firm. Sure. Let me actually kind of take another approach to this and, and say, one of our pretty kind of strong feelings about payment processing, like if I'm being super honest, is like we actually, for firms who are building their businesses around like a practice management system, we actually think that the payment processor you should be using is the one that integrates with your practice management system. Right. I really feel strongly about that. And to be fair, like our competitors, one in particular, has done a really good job of establishing integration relationships, which I'm, I think are 
you know, really great for them. And, and, but I, but, but more to the point, like, I think it's great for the lawyer. Like, I, I think that payments should be one part and it's the problem is it's relatively complex. So it's not something that a lot of these practice management systems build in kind of natively, but it's a fairly scalable, repeatable part of a law practice. And so like, I think again, just right out of the gate, like lawyers should be looking for ways either via their, you know, their existing practice management system, whether they integrate with a payment processor or, you know, Zapier or building a scalable system that enables their practice management system. If they're using some kind of CRM or intake system, that same deal to try to make their payments system integrate as much as possible with that system. Because I just, I think that like increasingly firms get really valuable economies of scale, really valuable coordination, really valuable automation from these, these systems. If they use them right and they build their, their practices to, you know, they, they figure out how to, how to, how to make their practices work with those systems. So that's, that's the first thing I would say is like, when we think about what we're building with our platform, we want to build something that works with the existing tools that lawyers already have. So like, for an example, we just recently built a, a QuickBooks integration because even though a lot of the practice management systems kind of integrate with, with QuickBooks, like that's the overwhelming accounting platform that, that most lawyers and law firms use. And so we thought that's, that's a place that we need to be. Yeah. The, I guess the, like, you know, kind, kind of looking at things as a platform too. And like, I mean, yeah, I, I yeah. might, I might pivot a little bit too, cause it's like, sure. if it. we're, if we're thinking about kind of the high level too, and like, you know, what do you guys see as far as firms that have all this stuff? Like if we can kind of paint a, you know, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for somebody undergoing this journey, it's like, you have the situation where you can take payment however you want. It's done automatically in your process and, you know, you yep. can even get this stuff on. So you know, do you have any sort of like customer success stories or, or anything that you can share as far as like, you know, how people have gotten this stuff and, and really leverage the, the, um, the different things that you guys connect with to, in, in, a, in a good way? Yeah. So I, again, I'd call out those firms that we're using that, that are super smart about saving the payment methods and then charging those on a regular basis. Like that's, again, I think a, a super simple, but huge success story that we've seen firms leverage think about other, there's another firm that we have that gets paid within like two days of sending a client a bill. They're just really on top of it, really kind of have built a system where they've created client expectations that like, Hey, in 48 hours, we want to get paid. And again, I think that's our technology facilitating it, but it's also building a, again, a system that helps leverage the technology that, that we have. As far as kind of other success stories from the platform. I and mean, we've worked with a number of firms who have implemented our, our fee shifting technology and seen their monthly processing bills reduced by anywhere from 50 to 80% on a monthly basis. Wow. And, and for some of them more, again, just pe- depending on sort of how they deploy those. The other thing I'll just quickly mention, you know, again, from a statistics perspective, We've also worked really hard to integrate ACH into not only our platform in general, but also the integrations that we offer. And you know, I know you talked earlier about the not wanting to search for your routing number and your account number. And like, I'm really probably more of a Gen Xer, but I'm a young Gen Xer. I know people joke like millennials don't even have checking accounts anymore, or certainly don't know, don't have checks, and they yeah. don't have, they don't know where those numbers are. I told, I I recognize that. I still use them. I still know those numbers. I'm. I guess I'm old in that way, but just like from a practical perspective, 
just because we've made ACH available and made it really easy for, for clients to pay with, we see about like for, for firms that just offer both and just say here, like pay with a card, pay with ACH, we don't care. We see about 20% of our payment volume go through ACH. Like people just use it because it's there. And again, maybe it's everybody over 40 or whatever. I don't know. But because ACH is so much less expensive than cards, that can have like a really meaningful impact in your, on your costs as well. And again, like the payment timelines are just about the same. Uh, so it's really like, it's really a pretty nice opportunity, I think, all around. So I think, you know, everything from kind of leveraging this, this saved uh, payment method technology to building systems that leverage the ability to get paid instantly to integrating ACH. I'd also say, and we've got a ton of content on this, which, you know, we can talk about this or not, but leveraging uh, the subscription legal services model too, like that's a great way. Not only does it help you improve your, your collections and really to some degree, your bottom line, but it also um, really helps lawyers and clients establish a really, a much better working relationship, right? When the client isn't thinking every time they're talking to you, like, oh, is, you know, has six minutes gone by and how much yeah. is this going to cost me? It helps build a really nice rapport. We've, we've, we've seen with clients and, and uh, lawyers and, and that's pretty awesome too, beyond the, the economic benefits. Yeah, that's awesome. And like, one of the things that I want to kind of just point out is like a common thread for anyone listening and getting overwhelmed by this stuff is that like, this isn't something that you have to necessarily wake up and do differently every day. A lot of the times getting one of these deployments together, whether it's, you know, switching your retainers over to collection model or turning on ACH, these are things that you kind of have to figure out once, whether it's something you figure out how to do your own or through documentations or through a partner like Gravity Legal. And then the cool thing is that you get these sort of, you know, just upgrades to your business that can last for a really, really long time. So um, I, I challenge anyone who's hearing some of these stories and thinking that's really cool to just think about, you know, what's worth it next time you end up getting out of the office at 3 p.m. on a Friday, right? You know, you can invest a couple hours or you're cut out early for happy hour, or, you know, sometimes you get to the point where you're saving 3% on your processing for the entire firm in perpetuity. So tons of opportunity here. And I think it's really exciting that you guys are, you know, going in there and, and, and giving people the tools to make sure that they can do this. But um, yeah, just uh, as far as I think I actually shoot, um, <laughs> I'm taking us to the bell. But um, yeah, as far as uh, people, you know, what's the best way to get in touch? But if you are interested in uh, taking the next step. Sure. So we're at gravity-legal.com. That's where the website is. We have just, if folks are interested in like learning more or learning about kind of what we've got, I'm going to, I'll give you two URLs for folks to, to check out. So gravity-legal.com slash processing guide. We've created a guide to payment processing for lawyers and law firms. So just like a 101, here's how this stuff works. Here's how much you're going to pay that sort of thing. So you can get that at uh, gravity-legal.com slash processing guide. And then at gravity-legal.com slash surcharging guide, that's where you can find more information about how you can shift those processing fees, the rules, whether you're in a state where uh, it's prohibited or not. So I'd say those are the two best ways to find out more about that. And then beyond that on the website, I think I mentioned earlier, we have our blog, uh, gravity-legal.com slash financially legal where you can read up on on the stuff we're doing and talking about. And then social media wise, I spend a ton of time on Twitter. So folks can find me at Right Brain Law on Twitter. Okay, awesome. And thanks for that, Dan. And like I was going to say too, that, you know, there's a lot of depth here. Um, and I, I actually checked out Dan's podcast before this and the blog is fantastic. You guys are doing some really interesting stuff and just looking at this from an angle that not a lot of people are. So I think if anyone's 
of the innovative bent, I think you'll find some real gems in there if you want to take some time. But um, yeah, outside of that, man, I really appreciate the time. And um, for everyone else, I will see you next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.